Hello there, my name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and this is the Right to Read Initiative. Today, I am excited to have Rick Moore joining us once again, uh, and this is the Rick Moore of the uh, Human Rights Trial Fighting for His Son's Right to an Appropriate Public Education, and this is as I've mentioned before, his third time talking to us. The first time we spoke about his journey from being an everyday parent to that superstar advocate that he was for his son and um, fighting for the rights of not just his child, but others. Uh, in the last episode, we spoke about the case itself and the process that it was and in today's episode, we're going to be talking about Rick's hopes for the future, uh, because as he said before, he wasn't just fighting this fight for his child. He could have taken the money and left, um, but he decided to go further. So first of all, thank you so much for doing it. You are definitely that parent that other parents want to aspire to. And... Yeah, you've definitely helped pave the way for other students. And we're going to go into that in a little bit more detail. Hi, Catherine. Yeah, you know, there really is nothing special about me. I have no legal training, no uh, educational training. And the reason I say that is I want parents to know that they don't have to be special. They don't have to have special knowledge, uh, but they will be angry and they have to learn to channel that anger in a constructive way. And, but it's, it's feeding off that anger that uh, gives you the stamina to take on a system that uh, seems monolithic. Yes, of course. And it's the perseverance, right? Yeah. Um, and realizing that, I don't know, um, for listeners who haven't listened to the previous episodes, Rick's son and I actually attended the same schools specializing in dyslexia. And when I was there at one of the schools, my mom got me one of these tiles that were popular in the 90s. And it says success That's is so the good. best revenge. And it's kind of been my motto throughout my life is proving the naysayers wrong and I, I feel like it's a, a good uh, tile for you, too, because, you know, it wasn't just saying, OK, we'll take the status quo. It's demanding better for your son uh, and setting a precedent for other children. So your success is the best revenge to people so that, no, you know, it, we did enough. Right. Except we didn't do enough. But. And uh, that's what this session is about, is what our our hope for the future um, is. Yeah. yeah, so I know when we've spoken, you obviously are very well-versed with your case. You were there for the 16-year time span uh, during the case, the arguments, and all the conclusions and decisions that have been made regarding it. Now, what, in the beginning, how did that make you feel? And I'm, I'm, what was your response? I mean, I know I'm not the first person to interview about this. 
my response to the, the findings and how oh. what was your original thought okay my next step is now that we have this yeah as we spoke about the last time uh, my initial response to uh, getting the decision was one of elation mm -hmm. because uh, we had set a precedent uh, we did get all the tuition back that we had paid to the private schools uh, Jeffrey was uh, awarded some damages uh, for his pain and suffering. Um, so, uh, yeah, one of elation uh, initially, but it didn't take long to read through the decision and realize that what I had set out to do in the beginning, which was create systemic change from the top down, in other words, forcing the Ministry of Education to uh, fulfill their mandate to provide meaningful access for all children. Mm -hmm. uh, we had failed. My, I, I, I was very disappointed because I felt that we had failed in that original goal. And, um, and I was, as time went by and I realized that uh, uh, they, they had not only uh, change the rules, for instance, getting rid of the BC Human Rights Commission, changing the, uh, the severely learning dis disabled uh, designation, eliminating it, and various other things. Um, they now, both the, the ministry and the districts felt immune uh, to uh, the ch anybody challenging them uh, and, and using the, the, the the precedent to challenge them in court to uh, change things. And um, which leads me to uh, what we, we touched on a few times uh, is the Ontario Human Rights Commission report. Mm -hmm. so, unlike the BC Human Rights Commission, which was reestablished uh, but without a mandate to uh, investigate systemic uh, um, issues. Mm -hmm. Right at the beginning of the Ontario Human Rights Commission report, it, there's a quote and it says, the Ontario Human Rights Commission places a special focus on addressing systemic discrimination in our education system. That's what I wanted in the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted somebody, not necessarily me, somebody to understand that the education system was discriminating systemically mm -hmm. against uh, kids with learning disabilities. So uh, the other thing uh, that we were trying to uh, bring to light in the systemic complaint that uh, we originally brought mm -hmm. was that we know, and the Ontario Human Rights Commission recognizes, that the largest special education exceptionality, mm -hmm. this is a quote from their report, the largest special education exceptionality in Ontario is learning disabilities and especially reading disabilities slash dyslexia. 
Mm -hmm. I love that they use the word dyslexia because there's been a huge um, controversy over whether that uh, word should be used. And for years, the uh, public education system has refused to use that word. Uh, Certainly you don't read it in psychoeducational reports. Um, And uh, so the fact that the Ontario Human Rights Commission is not afraid to use that word or reluctant to use that word is is something uh, that early on uh, when we were trying to pursue a systemic complaint um, confused me. I mean, the word has been around, it's, it's well accepted, it's used in academic, uh, in, the, in the best academic studies of learning disabilities. Um, so yeah, it, it, the reason I bring up this report and you brought it up is when you look at their uh, conclusions, they take off everything that our original complaint, systemic complaint, mm-hmm. had identified as being discriminatory. Yeah, and I think it's <clears throat> important to recognize that, you know, what you're trying to do is better for all students. What the OHRC, or Ontario Human Rights Commission's Right to Read Public Inquiry report It came up with, I believe it's 157 different recommendations for best practices for teaching students from all ethnic backgrounds. I believe there are about 50 specifically speaking to Indigenous, Inuit, and Métis individuals. And looking at what needs to be in the curriculum for general education the professional development that needs to take place for current teachers and the changes to the training programs for pre-service teachers so that we create that strong platform from the beginning to catch more students before they fall, having the fence at the top of the waterfall instead of the ambulances below. Now, one thing that I feel is the big flash word uh, in today's education is having inclusion in the classroom. And some people, you know, feel it's just, you know, warm butts and seats, I I think is what uh, some advocates say. And that doesn't mean this child is being included in the lesson at all. And recognizing the most inclusive setting may not be that classroom setting within your community school. It may be a pullout program that may even be at a different institution that specializes in the targeted support. And I know you can speak to the life changes that that made for your son. I know the changes that it made for me. for my sibling with dyslexia and for other students with dyslexia that have traveled this path. This also isn't unique to British Columbia or Canada. We see schools specializing for students with learning disabilities and dyslexia globally. 
And if it's not just a systemic problem within the province or the country, it needs to be recognized that these schools would not be around today if they weren't needed. Yeah, and it's not um, a, a model that is uh, unheard of in the public school system. It pull-out programs uh, exist within the public system Mm -hmm. All over the place, you have pull-out programs for, for French, you have pull-out programs for music, you have pull-out programs for uh, all kinds of uh, yeah, athletics, you know, they have, they have schools that are there to cater to strong, really strong athletes. Uh, uh, it's, uh, that's why I always say, uh, it would it would not be revolutionary to have one school in every district that uh, that kids that were diagnosed as at risk for reading failure could go to, just like a kid that uh, whose family uh, is uh, who, who, the language in the home is French, they are entitled to go to a French immersion school, or even in BC they have their own school. Uh, a, a, a public school system, uh, separate from the uh, the regular public school system. So this model, uh, and why it's so important for kids that are uh, failing to learn to read, is the self esteem issue. If they are in the classroom and they are unable to do what all the other kids in the classroom, the majority of the kids in the classroom can do their self-esteem esteem is very quickly undermined. So if you had a, a pull-out program in the public school system, more than a four-month program, one that they could go to for a year or two or three, um, that could bring them up to speed so that they were able to read well enough to go back into the classroom uh, without feeling stupid, without seeing that they were several grade levels behind their peers, then um, that would be a good thing. And it would be actually what inclusion, when you read the School Act, contemplates, a continuum of services. So once again, it's not revolutionary. It is actually in the School Act, and it is people within the system who obviously have not studied the School Act closely enough who, who uh, claim that inclusion is all about everything being um, provided within the classroom, the, 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 the neighborhood school classroom. Um, the reason there should be a school within every district is one, to make sure that there is consistency across the various districts, across the province, and two, so that what you and Jeff had to experience of, a, of two hours out of your day busing it to a, a far-flung school uh, wouldn't take place. And you would be still in your local neighborhood with the friends that you uh, grew up with before you uh, entered the school system. So once again, we are not talking about uh, anything revolutionary. The science has been around for decades. Uh, the, the teaching method has been proved to work time and time again. Um, 
the kids are in the system uh, until the parents remove them to a private school or they drop out, but they are there. Um, so we're not talking about anything revolutionary and we're not talking about anything that is going to bankrupt the school system. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth uh, stopping for a moment to talk about how these schools that specialize in dyslexia were created. They were created by parents who were frustrated because their children were not learning how to read within the public school system. So they went to get additional training, uh, typically Orton-Gillingham training uh, for the, the schools that were in uh, British Columbia at the time uh, that Jeff and I were kids. These schools were started by parents and the parents discovering that it's really hard to tutor your own child. So they right. trained kids and found more success that way. So it can be done. It has been done repeatedly. And doing so doesn't require a laundry list of degrees. No. It requires appropriate training and understanding how the human brain learns how to read. And the thing that I find really fascinating is that with the advances in cognitive neuroscience that we've had over the past few decades and actually being able to see the brain of different individuals, individuals are who are severely dyslexic, the way they appropriate or approach reading and recognizing that some of the strategies that are taught in today's classroom, such as guessing and looking at the pictures are strategies used by poor readers and dyslexics. And good readers don't use those strategies. So we are starting out teaching children how to read using poor reader strategies and hoping that if we're not doing the direct explicit instruction that they need to get it, they're gonna learn how to be strong, confident readers. And to me, that's just not acceptable. That's right. One thing that concerns me mm -hmm. about the human rights, uh, the Ontario Human Rights Commission mm -hmm. is that uh, at one point, it's, I don't think they believe this, but the way it's written, um, it appears to uh, claim that uh, given early intensive remediation, uh, that you can cure yeah. learning disabilities. Yeah. I don't think that's really what they're trying to say because they, they do quote the science and the science is, is clear that dyslexia is a lifelong condition. And even if you get early intense remediation, it still takes a dyslexic person much more effort to decode the symbols on the page. So because it's lifelong, they will always need accommodations. They will always need extra time for testing and, and, and awareness of employers and schools and so on that even though they have learned the, the tools to read and they've been taught and their, their, their brain has, has been stimulated uh, to, to enable the plasticity of the brain to to, to take over uh, what a, a, 
so another part of the brain to take over what a regular reader's brain would be doing, just like a stroke victim is, is can be given therapy and, and other parts of the brain can be stimulated to take uh, over functions. Um, so I, I would really have liked to see a, a clearer statement in that report that I understand people don't want to use the word disability because actually it is the school system that is disabled. Mm -hmm. But until it's just like it's just like a dyslexic kid should be pulled out of the regular classroom and put in a, a separate setting until they are able to to return to the class without feeling stupid or two steps behind. It's the same with the use of the word disability. Without a designation today, in today's world, in today's education, public education system, mm -hmm. you do not get any services. Um, and uh, it, it, it entitles you to get the disability tax credit. It entitles you, if you get the disability tax credit, to dis the disability savings plan. That's the world we live in. And until that world is changed to fully and meaningfully accommodate kids with learning disabilities, we need to be, we need that label. So those are, it's a quibble, but I would really like them to emphasize that it is a lifelong uh, condition. I think it's essential to recognize that uh, from what the research says and from personal experience. Mm -hmm. I myself am severely dyslexic. I've had assessments. I've worked. Um, and, you know, it's a shame that it's a fight that's still going on because, you know, even when I was doing, you know, my post-secondary work, I, I've got several degrees. Um, and between uh, when I would transfer to a different university for my second degree, they had tried to get me to get a new psychoeducational assessment, uh, which is common. Most post-secondary institutions want one that's been done within two years of time of application. Um, and that is very expensive, especially as a student. Um, but I was able to argue that, you know, my disability hasn't changed. It was recognized at the last university that I went to. And you're not asking students who wear glasses in the classroom to get you a new prescription every two years. Like they get their accommodation uh, without having to fight for it. Um, and I'm not saying that someone wearing glasses should have to fight for the ability to wear glasses in the classroom. Um, but it, it is, you know, it is difficult. And then, uh, you know, when I was actually doing my final dissertation, so the final big paper that I had to do to graduate, show my research, um, I approached the faculty of graduate studies um, to ask them for a recommendation for an editor for my dissertation. And they said that I couldn't have one because that would be cheating and that I just needed to do tutoring uh, and I'd, I'd be able to do it myself. 
And uh, I feel bad for the person that I had working with me because I got up on my soapbox and I said, you know what? I'm severely dyslexic. This is you testing my disability. The fact that punctuation and grammar are not my strong point. Uh, and I have had years and years and years of the tutoring that you're recommending and I can't do it. I can recite it left and right, but in actual practice going through, it doesn't work for me. I'm sorry. Yeah. So that, and you know, I, you know, I know of um, students that are still having to fight for getting what they need to do well. And it's, it's, you know, trying to put a square peg in a round hole in the sense that, you know, a lot of these things are just checking boxes. And, you know, when you look at the research on standardized measures of a test or assessment, especially looking at questions like multiple choice questions, uh, that's testing an individual with a reading disability at their weakest point. And I know there were several multiple choice exams, especially in the school or in the psychology setting for undergraduate schools uh, that are all multiple choice. And the subtle differences in the questioning aren't appropriate for dyslexic because they're struggling just to pick those up in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the effort to decode the questions and the nuances of the uh, so the effort to decode the symbols means that there is no energy left to uh, to to understand the nuances mm -hmm. of a question. It's so easy to uh, because you there is a certain amount of guessing that has to go on because the English language does not make sense. The the spelling of words is I mean the studies have been shown that if you are uh, Chinese and you have a, 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 a alphabet based on pictures, there's just as many dyslexic people in China, but they don't struggle as much. Or if you have a language like Portuguese that is more consistent in its spelling, just as many dyslexics in the population, but less confusion over the thing. So if you happen to be a, a, a dyslexic person living in a, a country that with in English, where, I mean, any, any of us are dependent on spell checker and, and all kinds of stuff, but spell checker only works about half the time. Uh, it's just, anyway, to get back to the point, it's that uh, there has to be a recognition that learning disa uh, disabled persons will need accommodations throughout their life. You know, it's funny, uh, when I was at the Learning Disabilities Association of Vancouver, I didn't, I, I liked to work with the parent support group. And every year a guy would come from a tax prep company who said, you know, they've eased up the rules and now the persons with dyslexia can qualify for the uh, disability tax credit. And uh, as I told you, uh, uh, most of the people that in that parent support meeting were poor people. Uh, they 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 weren't going to. So this is a minor court thing that we we battle that we went through. Nothing like the uh, human rights complaint. But um, because I was the uh, board rep in the group, I thought, well, somebody's got to test this guy's 
information. Mm -hmm. So I, we went to this company and he said, they will always reject you for the disability tax credit. What you have to be able to do is appeal it and win. Okay, so we applied for Jeff, mm -hmm. he was rejected. And, but what he said was true on appeal. This company was expert enough in dealing with CRA that they were able to qualify Jeff. Well, Jeff was easier than most because he had this giant case that, that said he is, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court is saying he's severely learning disabled. After four years though, just what you said, you experienced in the university, they came back and said, well, is he cured? You know, and uh, and we had to go through the uh, really be put through the ringer, just like you did, to mm -hmm. uh, uh, to show that yes, he's still and and they said, but but he's working as a journeyman plumber. How can that be? Well, he went through three or four employers who who did not treat him well because they did not accommodate him. They weren't willing to accommodate him until he finally got through the union which Michelle had got him into, um, uh, an employer that was willing to accommodate him. Uh, and that employer uh, had, had the secretary do all his paperwork. Um, so, so yeah, so even something like, like a CRA is, is, has this idea that it can be cured. And, and if you have, the, 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 the catch-22 is if you have any success like you've had, they suddenly think, oh, uh, with that kind of success, you must be cured. You, you know, so get another test to, to prove that you're not. You know, it's just, yeah. it, it's, it's, the, it's the Kafka-esque kind of catch-22 that you find yourself in all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, and also recognizing that individuals that are paraplegic or on the autism spectrum do face this same um, issue uh, when it comes to proving that they are still disabled. So it is not unique to students with uh, dyslexia. No, that's right. So it, it is a, a problem within the system. Um, but... It's a mindset mm -hmm. built on old or non-existent science. If if they actually made the effort to uh, be up to date, and and so that's one of the good things about the Ontario Human Rights Commission, is that um, they they point out the need to be current on the science. Um, mm -hmm. One other thing before I forget uh, about the report, and uh, it's it it or or about reading the report that brings uh, it brings something to mind. It's not it's not really the report's conclusion, uh, um, uh, but it, it's. Um, I am uh, especially suspicious of the motives of all for-profit schools, companies, and programs that claim to uh, cure 
uh, dyslexia, um, which is why we have to find a way to make it work in a public school system. I, I mean, I, I have nothing but good things to say about Kenneth Gordon and Fraser Academy uh, in the time that you and Jeff went there. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that I don't want to badmouth the current edition of Kenneth Gordon Maplewood, but it is not the same school that you and Jeff went to. And I don't think it would work as well today for you and Jeff as, uh, as it did back then. So, um, and they're not a for-profit school, but they're, they're a school that's trying to get by uh, through a relationship with the North End School District. And so they've had to make compromises. Yeah, and recognizing, like, I, I get into this all the time, like, because I do act as a consultant and advocate, and I would love to do it for free, but I have spent a lot of money on education, and I do work quite hard at what I do, um, but it, I'm not it, suspicious of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's recognizing that there needs to be a systematic change and understanding that it's gonna make people uncomfortable. But the people it's making it uncomfortable for are ones that can handle it and should yeah, be able to Absolutely. It's the university institutions that have the tenured professors uh, that are experts in the the teaching strategies that have caused the problems they are the content creators or the textbook creators and the book creators uh that are still using strategies for reading instruction that again are against what's going to help the most students learn how to read the first time they're taught uh, you know, locally, I've seen some of the education gurus or the edu celebrities make claims that they understand the best practices that we're advocating for with the Ontario Human Rights Commission, um, something called the science of reading and structured literacy, when they have a very basic understanding. It takes years to get this full understanding research is shown it takes about five years to go from a balanced literacy school to a structured literacy school and that's okay we're all right with the growing room but the growing has to start now yeah you see a classic example is you see people that are have just kind of skimmed the surface of of the science of reading mm -hmm. and they still don't understand the difference between phonics and phonemic awareness. Yes. Um, so all those pH words, right? <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's um, but it is encouraging that that the Ontario Human Rights Commission has taken the, their mandate to investigate this systemic discrimination they've taken their that mandate seriously they haven't run from it like the bc human rights commission so my hope is that because of this report 
the Ontario Ministry of Education uh, implements it in total. I mean, in total, because they're going to take a minute and go through the things that just jumped out at me in the report. And I'm, these are the points that, that we were identifying when we first began presenting our case. Mm -hmm. so it recognizes the importance of early screening. We have been crying out for uh, the screening of every kid entering the system in kindergarten grade one. As soon as they enter it, screen them using inexpensive uh, screening tests that are widely available. Identify them. Number two, it recognizes the consequences of the failure to remediate. It asks for evidence-based reading interventions. It, uh, it mandates data collection. Uh, and why? So they can track the effectiveness of the interventions. This was key in our, in our uh, original complaint because it, it was obvious that they were tracking the districts on, how, on, on the fact that they'd spent the money the way they'd been told to spend the money, but there was absolutely no tracking of the effectiveness of the programs that were being used. And, and basically that was just LAC if you were lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, so they mandate accountability, uh, ensure, ensure adequate staff training in reading interventions, improve access to accommodations, ensure all students who need supports have professional assessments. Oh, that's key, that, that uh, there isn't, a, eliminate the two-year waiting list and get third-party psychologists doing the assessments uh, because there's a conflict. You can have school psychologists but the ones doing the assessment should, there should be an independent, in my opinion, there should be an independent body. Um, One thing uh, I just want to add to that, because it fits perfectly with what you're saying, is uh, I know a school psychologist that actually left where she was working, uh, that worked for the public schools, because one of the diagnostic criteria for dyslexia is failure to learn to read despite uh, effective instructional practices. And she said, or she, she said that she can't say for you know some of these kids that they're testing that they've had adequate instruction using evidence-based practices. They haven't. Because it's more, is it dysteachia? Well, you don't want to diagnose a kid with this dyslexia when they actually have dysthesia. That's, that's what it means. That's it's the system see, that's disabled. That's yeah. where we see the kids that are quote unquote cured. Yeah. And I like I remember I had a really hard time personally uh, when I was getting ready to leave Kenneth Gordon because the psychologist that did my new assessment said I was cured and I knew that I wasn't. And that was very, very bad for my social emotional well-being yeah, but that is what one of the troubles you, we had you have what we learned is you have to go to a knowledgeable body 
mm-hmm. like LDAV or uh, uh, that that has kept the list of psychologists that actually know what they're talking about. If you just go to your local health branch, you might get a psychologist that that isn't versed in learning disabilities at all and says, oh, it's a big deal, you know, it's just, it's just a delay, it's just a... Or they'll use language that that is uh, not layman's terms and they won't take the time to really, you know, these are the same people that won't use the word dyslexic. Um, uh, so that is a really, really good point, uh, Catherine. Um, so, uh, and, and then, uh, then to track students. You've identified them, you, 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 you've screened them when they entered the system, and then you track them right through. So you can see that if a kid is at risk of dropping out in grade 10, why? It's because they haven't got the things. Or if they have got uh, best, uh, what you regard as best practices, test it, make sure that, that it's working the way. And, and of course, that the ministry takes responsibility for collecting that data to ensure that there's consistency across the province, that every that a child in Kamloops or Prince Rupert is going to be able to get the same remediation that a kid in Vancouver. Um, so set standards and monitor and monitor all the, the uh, systemic uh, uh, issues. So um, there's one thing, just because I'm, I'm cognizant of time today. Yep. Um, one thing that I, I want to say, because I, I do know that there are parents and advocates listening to this um, who are, are wondering what they could do to help support their child. Now, you have repeatedly used this case. Uh, to help other families. Now, can you talk a little bit about that? And then also the fact that, you know, they parents are able to get their kids to have the tutoring that they need uh, with the school system paying for it. But then they're having to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, and this is putting parents between a rock and a hard place because they know that their kid needs this, this support. And this is the only way that their kid is going to get their support. But that also means that they can't call out and try and make it better. Yeah. Uh, so um, the uh, because the BC Human Rights tribunal or commission um, now forces parents into mediation and that the parents are forced to sign the non-disclosure agreements, that means another parent faced with the same problem can't use the, uh, the roadmap that that family used to get a, um, you know, a little more uh, of the services that the kid was entitled to. Um, and so you're not able to, we set a precedent, but families, it's another reason why things are worse today than it was in our day. Families, uh, don't, aren't, aren't, aren't able to even, um, 
have basic fairness in the system and 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 transparency uh it's um but here's an example so you, you of of using the uh the precedent to help one kid um people track me down i'm hard to find but people like you track me down and um because I, I have, I did get worn out and I did retire to a certain degree. But um, people occasionally track me down. And this mother um, in North End had a, a child and she'd been seeing all these red flags accumulate, you know, showing that he'd been harmed. Mm-hmm. And she tracked me down. She said, uh, I've been able to get a a meeting with the district principal and the whole team, LAC, classroom teacher, principal, school psychologist. Um, and uh, I, I want to get him into the reading center, but he's not even on the list to get in. And the reason I'm bringing this up, his facts, it was 10 years after Jeff had gone through Braemar School, his facts paralleled Jeff's exactly. And she, so I go to the meeting, uh, she's got this, she's done the right thing and she's got all the emails, she's, and, and it, there, there's, there's five or six red flags that they had ignored Mm-hmm. And uh, we start out and it's the district principal f- first up and he's spouting off platitudes. So forget him. Uh, he, he's obviously not knowledgeable. Uh, then the principal, you know, once again, platitudes. The LAC, oh, we did, you know, things. we saw progress, so on. The cl- same stuff we got with Jeff. Um, so I slapped the court case down. I said, I point out the exact parallel between Phoenix and Jeff. And the last person to speak was the school psychologist. And the first words were, she said to the mother was, I am sorry, because the red flags weren't communicated to the school psychologist. The result was of that meeting was he went from off the priority list to the top of the priority list. And the next available spot at the reading center, the one that had replaced the diagnostic center in North Van, Mm -hmm. she got in. She was watching our podcast, the second one about the case, and Mm -hmm. she emailed me to give a progress report on Phoenix. And so she showed me his report card and there was a comment, Phoenix is learning to advocate for himself. And I wrote back, it almost brings me, sorry, sorry, it's choking me up. Um, Isn't that the thing? Teaching your kids to advocate for themselves. It is for a kid who saw himself as stupid, who had to felt he was being unworthy or unable or whatever to, to, and, but you know what? She had to go to an outside counselor mm-hmm. to uh, train him in self-advocacy. Because like you said, parents, 
do not make good Orton Gillingham tutors. You're too close. And and you can them. That's right. So sometimes you have to go to a third party to get that. But what a wonderful story. And this happens to me from time to time that I'll see things working, but it's only one kid. That's the heartbreak. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Rick. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I know others will have lots to take from it too. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity, Catherine. It's been a pleasure.